Welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 108, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And hopefully we'll be able to hear all of this week's episode, unlike last week. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, that was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it? I... I'll tell you the story of what happened. So I edited the show a bit late last week, you know, hands up, bit of a busy week. Friday afternoon, finally got it finished about 5pm, hit the upload button and... We put it on several platforms, but on SoundCloud, when you see the player, it gives you like a little visual waveform, doesn't it? Yeah, and SoundCloud's kind of the main place that pumps out to everything. Yeah, so. yeah. All the RSS feeds and yeah. stuff come off there on our website and everything. And I looked at it and I thought, maybe it's just because it's a slightly different EQ or something. So it was a live interview that we did last week that yeah. we ran on the show. And it looked all right in Adobe Audition. You know, the waveform looked fine in there. So I beat it yeah, up. Yeah, you sent me a it. copy. I, I'd listen to it. It sounded fine. So then I thought, you know, it got to about half past six. Show's done this week, you know, rub my hands up, right, okay, I've got to meet the missus now for a couple of drinks and a bit of food in town. I've done this 106 times before, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a pro at this now, nothing can go wrong. (laughs) So, then I'm uh, on my way into town to meet the missus, you know, we normally do on a Friday, got the pub, bit of food and stuff. Then, I saw the messages start coming in. I can't hear this week's show, it's just white noise. And I'm like, What? So I got my earphones out. I had listened to my iPhone. It actually sounded all right on my iPhone, which is a really weird thing because then other people are commenting going, I can listen fine. It's all yeah, right. Some device. people were saying, oh, I could hear it. Other people weren't. Yeah. I put it on. I was listening to half the show then. <laughs> I was like, God. And then I got into town. My missus had her laptop and she had a phone. Worked fine on a laptop, but a phone it didn't. So I was like, what's going on here? As it turns out, long story short, it was a live interview that we did, and we used this little thing called a Tascam recorder. And it turned out that it had recorded the left and right channels out of phase. So some equipment's more sensitive than others to that, apparently. So re-rendered the whole thing in mono, and it was absolutely fine. So we do apologise if you had a bit of trouble listening to last week's show. Yeah, and uh, we're going to remember that trick for next time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously, we're off to a play expo today at the time the show comes out, uh, using a different recorder for our interviews there, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I borrowed my dad's one. It's expensive and good. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't get in until about like nearly midnight last week. So I thought, right, what I'm going to have to do is I'll record the show in real time from one this, machine to another. This is the best bit about the whole story. This is the funniest thing that you guys don't know. <laughs> right, okay, well, picture this. I've been up since 5 o'clock on Friday morning. Very long day at work. Went out, obviously, had a couple of beers in the evening. Got home and I thought, right, I'm going to solve this. What I'll do is I'll record the audio in real time from one machine to another. So, like, line in. Yeah, you line in. You're just doing it direct. Got yeah. to do it for an hour, obviously. You know, make sure there's no file corruption or anything like that. So I left my uh, PC recording it to a Mac. My missus really tired. She went to bed. It's like midnight, so I thought... Yeah, because oh. we decided to pull the episode, so we'll just leave Dan to do it lying in overnight and do it on the Saturday. Yeah, we'll get up Saturday morning, yeah. we thought. So I thought, well, I've got an hour to kill now. Bearing in mind, I've been up since 5am. I thought, I'll go on virtual reality for a bit. I'll play Doom. So I went on the PSVR, put my headset on, fell asleep wearing it. <laughs> How can you do that? <laughs> How can you fall asleep with a VR set? It's the most uncomfortable <laughs> thing. <laughs> then I woke up. Eight o'clock in the morning, looking down at the floor in doom, <laughs> looked up and there's like a monster next to me. I'm like, <gasps> that's, I think, the rudest awakening I've ever had. Yeah, get a heart attack. Like, where am I? God. I was instantly awake. I'm though, in yeah. hell. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a shock to the system, I must admit. So, yeah, first time I've ever fell asleep in VR. I don't recommend it, I must say. But, yeah, we got the episode sorted in the end out on Saturday morning. So, yeah, we apologise about that, guys. Hopefully it won't happen again. Thank you for bearing with us. And obviously, we've got some exciting interviews coming up over the next few weeks. Going to bring you some of the uh, the chats that we do on the Play Expo panels this weekend. And I think today, we've got someone who's going to be so interesting. And a world first because he's never done a podcast before. Is that right? No, yeah, he hasn't before. Uh, Michael Lowry. And this guy is just such a pioneer in the kind of early internet. You know, we had Richard Bartolon, who yeah. talked about mud 
well, Michael ran his rival, which was missed. And, uh, you know, he kind of did a lot of really interesting stuff online. And uh, he also got sent to court for cyber squatting. So, uh, Was he one of the first ever cyber squatters? Yeah, one of the first cases in the UK. So he, um, I think it was Harrods.com yeah. and BurgerKing.co.uk and stuff. He just registered all of this and said, right, buy them off me. So, so we're talking we're, like, you know, before these companies even thought about the internet. Yeah, probably. yeah, the very early days. And, uh, you know, he also was a big advocate of IRC, which is, you know, we talk about the internet now and we think, oh, it's all real time with Twitter and everything. Yeah. IRC was real time back then. Yeah, so that was in 1987, I think, IRC yeah, was invented. Really old, wasn't it? I'm sure he's got some tales of like BBSs and obviously the university networks and all that, which is where really all these early games started, isn't it, on the uni networks? Yeah, and we've kind of covered it with Richard, but, you know, this is, we, we, we haven't covered that bridge between the internet and BBSs and... I think that's just a fascinating period for me. This is like mud turf wars then. Yeah. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> so our special guest, Michael Laurie, is going to be coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we did mention we've got play this weekend. Um, you've got another event coming up next weekend as well. Oh, yeah. I'm, go- I'm going to Margate. I'm not going to sing the song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no, no, I'm awful. Um, but yeah, I'm going to Dreamland, which is just a fantastic place. It was It's kind of an old 19... 19- 30s Art Deco um, kind of fairground and they've redone it all and now Margate's full of hipsters apparently. You're telling all, me uh, that? It's trendy now then, is it? Because well, I've been to Margate since I was about seven. Well, if, if you live in London, mm-hmm. you, it's one of the closest places where you can get a cheap building, you know, compared to London prices. And yeah, Brighton's overpriced now, isn't it? Obviously? Yeah, yeah. So. And so what's happening then? What's at this event, Geek? Well, it's, it's on Friday, Saturday and Sunday and that's the 16th till the 18th. And there's going to be a lot of stuff going on. This is kind of a family-aimed event. So it's, it's, it's not your full retro gaming, but it's gaming of all kinds. So, you know, they've got a, a geek lab. They're going to have a Minecraft takeover, a Jedi, Jedi Fight Academy, which oh, sounds pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, there's like an indie zone, a virtual reality one, a Star Trek Bridge Crew, which is a wicked game on VR if you've played that. Yeah, yeah, really good. And they have all these mad little things, like they've got Punch in the Custard, which is a kind of, they make this bowls of custard and then kids come up and they have to punch them to control the games <laughs> that's quite a creative controller isn't it yeah so it's kind of an exploration of play and games and you're going to be down the hosting the weekend. yeah i'm going to be doing the announcements and stuff so it'd be cool just pop down and say hi if you're in margate there should be quite a few people retro crew down there absolutely so if you want to find out more and get tickets for that we'll put that in this week's show notes at the retrohour.com and if you're on our website, obviously that is a place where you can show a little bit of love if you listen to this podcast week in, week out. I mean, you know, we don't ask for a lot, do we? No, no, if you've got a few bitcoins that you want to get rid of at the moment. <laughs> what are they worth now? Not even worth it. The mouse clicks are there these days, <laughs> bitcoins. I did actually buy some bitcoin, you know, when it's at its all-time lowest, I think, wasn't it, the yeah, other day? Yeah. Well, it's been like 10 years. Um, it'll go back up, I'm sure. We'll see. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but if, you, uh, if you do want to make a donation into the running of the show, if you haven't got bitcoins, you can do it via PayPal. We accept any currency on PayPal, actually. Yeah, and, uh, and kind of any credit card as well. You can just use it because it's, it's worldwide PayPal, isn't it? Yeah, it does conversions and that anyway, yeah. doesn't it? So if you'd like to make a little donation into the running of the show, obviously anything we get into our tip jar does go back into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. And all you've got to do is head on to our website. You'll find the links on the front page of theretrohour.com. And we want to say a massive thank you this week for donating and making their place in the Hall of Fame. Gary Hucker. Charles Aswood. Michael Willits. And Andrew Holland. Who all made donations into the running of the show. Thank you so much, guys. Really, really appreciate that. And you can do the same by going to our website, theretrohour.com. Now, before our special guest, uh, some really cool stories this week. Did you ever think that you would open the Argos catalogue 
and see the brand Commodore right in the middle of the pages of, about the games and computers and stuff. No, no, I didn't. And uh, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out we talked about this product um, a few months ago now because it had been rumoured for a while. This is the C64 Mini. Now, this is interesting because you say the word Commodore... And there is no word Commodore on it, but they have put it in the category of Commodore. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the company name on argos.co.uk is Commodore, isn't it? Yeah. Which I imagine the last time they listed that was probably like, what, over 20 years ago yeah. <laughs> when they sell like the Amiga 500 and stuff. But it does mean that this product is now finally getting a proper release. We've got a release date for it now. 29th of March it's going to be out. And uh, £70? 70 quid, which, you know, admittedly it's a bit more expensive than making your own with a Raspberry Pi and getting a case. But this is a fully finished product that you can buy in high street shops. Yeah, so, it says it comes with a joystick as well, 64 games, you know, a two-year guarantee. And the box looks, you know, pretty similar to the original C64 box, actually. Yeah. But if you go on YouTube, even though it's not out yet until the end of next month, um, there's a YouTuber called uh, Lard's Lair. Okay. You've seen him yeah, 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 I've seen him. Well, he's actually been along to the, the offices of the crew that are behind this system. So... You actually see the hardware, and it looks, if you watch this video, it looks pretty much identical to the original Breadbin Commodore 64, but it's much smaller. And it's got like a non-functioning keyboard on there, but, you know, stylistically, it looks very similar. You did mention that there's no Commodore branding on it, and I thought, you know, because, you know, the Commodore 64 has got that Commodore key in the corner? Mm, yeah. I, th I thought, what are they going to do about that? But looking closely, it just says, yeah, the C64 on that key. Yeah, so, that's it, and there's no, like, uh, you know, the little bird head logo. Yeah, the chicken head thing. Yeah, yeah, there's none of that. It's not on it anywhere, is it? But it's got, um, like you said, 64 games, and they have now confirmed uh, which games are on there. So if you, uh, if you actually watch this video... You can see the user interface and everything that's on there. Oh. And it looks really good. And a few of the games that are on there already, they've uh, you know, confirmed stuff like uh, Boulder Dash is going to be on there. Um, the Iridium. Yeah, Iridium's on there. A lot of Houston games are actually on here. They've got stuff like School Days. Like California uh, Games. California Games yeah. on there as well. Yeah, Cybernoid. All yeah, right, the Monty yeah. Games, Monty Mola on there, Monty on the Run. So it's actually quite a nice little package for those who... Maybe remember the Commodore 64, but I think, because, you know, this actually the platform it runs on, apparently, from what I've seen, it's pretty much identical hardware to the, the um, NES Mini and the SNES Mini. Okay. Well, I think also it says it's got two USB ports, so that might be quite nice to get some of these new controllers. Yeah. And then have them on Bluetooth and kind of play your C64 games with a nice wireless controller. Rather than using, the, I mean, the joystick that's built into it, though, I don't know if it does more than just controlling the games, because as you can see, it's got quite a lot of buttons on it. I don't know whether that kind of selects some of the yeah, games. Yeah, yeah, because they haven't got the keyboard, maybe that's extra options. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to wire Press up other one button or something. <laughs> you know. But it's um, available for pre-order. They're selling it at um, Argos and Smith's Toy Shop as well. So it's you, actually you're in high school. you I probably will, actually, even if just to do a video on it. Yeah, I think compare it to the old one. Well, you've got you've got a Commodore sixty four as well. I mean, how, how are you getting on with yours? You only picked it up in like October. Yeah, I, I've got to buy all the little editions. I actually found that um, Marvin had sent me a copy of Miss Pac Man for the Commodore sixty four because I thought I've got no C sixty four software in the house, but yeah, yeah I've got random carts. Oh, so, you've got cards. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I put the cart in. I was playing Miss Pac Man the other day. It was pretty cool. So I'm gonna get one of those little SD card adapters and start running more mad things on it. You want to get some Rob Hubbard blasting out? Oh on that yeah, I want to get some demos on there and yeah, give that SID chip a workout. <laughs> <laughs> but I think again, it's like the audience that would buy the the NES and the SNES Mini, isn't it? It's those that are not really into the whole hacking and homebrew scene. It's more for the guys that will walk past Argos and maybe spotted in the window or something. That's it. You know, it, it, it's 
for me, I've, I know to go online and buy an SD adapter and then follow yeah. this guide and all of that. But, you know, it could be very confusing for someone who just has that little nostalgia hit. Yeah. And this could be a good purchase, you know. Well, even I've been seeing, you know, the um, that kind of Spectrum Bluetooth keyboard thing that was released. Um, they sell that in like game and stuff now. So. I, don't, I don't think it's going to compete with the NES Mini or anything on that level at all. But, you know, the press will obviously build it up to that level. Oh, the C64 is yeah. back. Well, but I think it'll do well. Yeah. And it loads the games instantly. I'm going to wait like 20 minutes for the, yeah. the data set to load, which is We'll see what the quality is like. Yeah. <laughs> well, it looks all right from this video I've seen. But again, I mean, for me, it's HDMI out. And I like to play them on a CRT. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they'll have scanline emulation or something like that. Yeah, that does help a little bit. But, I mean, we were having this discussion the other day because, I mean, really good time now to give a massive shout to Chris Hull, who um, is one of our listeners, really generously sent us a nice big box of tricks oh, that God, we've got on the table here. loads of stuff in here. There's a, one of those old-school stylophones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's your weekend sorted, yeah. isn't it? You're not going to take that to Blackpool, are you? No, no. Oh, yeah, I might, I might do a little performance outside in the cold. And you've got uh, Lemmings and Mortal Kombat vinyl, but he also sent me, which are really cool, but he sent me a a Sega Game Gear as well. And you were talking, you mentioned about these mods that you can get to put like new LCD screens in. And I've, I looked at them, they look all, you know, they look cool and everything, but then they kind of remind me a bit of playing like, you know, an Amiga or a Commodore 64 on an LCD and it looked a bit too sharp and a bit pixelated. Yeah, you know, especially when the colours are that bright and it, it, it's kind of like CRT makes a big mush yeah. that everything goes into, and <laughs> that's just too defined. I've had this argument so many times because I did a video on YouTube probably about four years ago now, and it was called "Is CRT Better for Retro Gaming?" And you get so many people in there arguing till the blue in the face that you know, oh, ridiculous. You don't I bet need the it. comments are still going on in your video. Oh, I, get about, I get about ten, like ten a week on it still. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, there is a massive debate. There's been going on in the retro community for years, but you know, to me, the display is such an important aspect of retro gaming because really that's the thing you spend 99% of your time looking at. Well, I think it's certain games and certain demos and stuff were made for CRT. Like I, All of them back then. Well, well all of them, yeah. yeah but um, like certain stuff really stands out. So like we, we played Cannon Fodder and you mentioned back in the days, oh my God, it didn't look like this. Yeah. And then you tried it on the CRT and you really got that nostalgic feeling. Like some of the Copper demos, Copper Master and stuff like that, you watch that on CRT and it just stands out so well now. It's just much better than any HD or o, even OLED, well, uh, in my opinion. I think, like you said, that you know they were designed for that screen, so that's what the animators and the graphic graphic artists made them to look yeah. like that on that screen. And you know there is a bit of CRT, like you said, it blurs stuff a bit. It's like anti-aliasing, it's called, isn't it? Yeah. So, but when you watch it on an HD TV, it really just stands. All the pixels are square and blocky, and yeah, to me, it just doesn't look authentic. And I think if you're going to go, like, say to all the effort of getting the original hardware, getting all the original peripherals, but then you're kind of losing the most important thing you spend all your time looking at and you replace it with, like, you know, a 4K telly. It's yeah. like, you might as well just emulate it on your PC, True. in my opinion. But I know there are people that disagree, but there you go. So it would be nice if, uh, you know, you can get converters to hook up HDMI to CRTs and stuff anyway, can't you? So I think so, yeah, yeah. Downgrade it. Downgrade your C64 <laughs> mini. <laughs> but like you said, you know, the people that are buying that are not into that frame of mind, are no, they? No, no, no. They're not play it. Pop it in the telly and have a go on Iridium. Now, this is something really cool that we still have printed Amiga magazines. Oh, yes. In 2018. And there was quite a landmark anniversary recently. Amiga Future magazine has just celebrated its 20th anniversary. I can't, I can't believe it's 20 years, honestly, because I remember when this magazine came out yeah. and 
to be honest, this was a point when the Amiga didn't have much of a future. 98, so, yeah. So I used to say my friends, and so Amiga future, and they'd laugh. They'd go, Where is the future? But now, actually, <laughs> we're in a much better state, and this magazine survived through the whole time, and it's in print. A yeah. full-color magazine with CD. They're doing a German version and an English version. It's every other month it's released, isn't it? Every two months. Yeah, yeah. And I was actually featured in there not long ago. They did like a, an article about YouTubers. Mm. And, you know, I, I haven't actually read that issue. I, I didn't need to get hold of it. But, you know, I've bought issues of it in the past. And like you said, the fact they do a cover-mounted CD is pretty cool as well. It's got software for, like, all the different variants of the Amiga on there. And the thing is, that there was a point where it was kind of like the, the internet sites are starting to report a lot of stuff that the magazines are. But now the magazines have these unique things where you've got interviews with people and you've got kind of sections. They had this great thing where Trevor Dickinson, who was the head of... Aeon. Yeah. He was doing a retrospective and he was talking about all of the old companies, how they ended up in dodgy situations and stuff. And it's just really fascinating. I, I really love that magazine, Amiga Future. Yeah, and it's just cool that there is, like you said, a full colour, glossy magazine with the CD ROM mounted on the front that's been going 20 years. That must make it the longest running Amiga magazine then, 20 years. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's a long run, isn't it? Absolutely. So, I mean, if you want to subscribe to that, um, I need to renew my subscription, actually, because it is a really good read. You're actually going to be writing some stuff for them. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking of doing an article with them, which will kind of be comparing what it was like 20 years ago, yeah. the scene, to now, and mm. kind of the amazing opportunities we have now and all the hardware that's out compared to those dismal days <laughs> when it started. <laughs> well, they printed in uh, English and German as well, and uh, you can actually order it directly from their website. So, um, you know, I, I just love getting magazines. I do buy retro uh, gamer most months as well. Yeah. It's just nice, I mean, because in our era when we grew up, that's how you read about video game news and stuff. And there is still something very nostalgic about, especially if you've got a train journey or well, something. Well, I still have that habit. When I get a new magazine, I don't sit there and read it all in one. Yeah. I read a few pages and a few articles and I save it throughout the week <laughs> so I can read at different points. And then, you know, you kind of pace it, don't you, with a magazine? Yeah, don't, don't gorge on it all at once. No. Yeah. Don't overdose on retro goodness. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if you want to support, support that magazine, I think it's incredible they've been going for so long. Um, definitely worth a look. We'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, here's a headline I never thought I'd read. Pong has been turned into a TV game show. <laughs> <laughs> what? Is this going to be like Hole in the Wall or something? <laughs> Are they going to just have two guys dashing something at each other? I don't... Well, this is Atari, or, you know, the company that owned the Atari brand yeah. name now, They've partnered with a guy called Scott Sternberg. Now, Scott, his game show credentials include um, Rock and Roll Jeopardy, Catch 21, Hollywood Squares, Kids Wheel of Fortune, The Gong Show, Love Connection. So he's done some really high-profile, slick American yeah, yeah, TV Yeah, The show. Gong Show, I know, I've heard of everything else. <laughs> Not sure. Yeah, they all sound like kind of spin-offs of yeah. other kind of famous shows. But apparently this guy's got some quite big credentials if you're into the uh, you know, gaming television show scene in America. But now, they haven't got a network attached to this yet, but he's going to be making, in cooperation with Atari, a television show called Million Dollar Pong. Million Dollar Pong. So essentially, people go on TV and play a variant of Pong to, I assume, win a million dollars. Well, do you think it's going to be one of those, like, cheat versions <laughs> where he's, he's rigged it somehow to not... Uh... Now, something tells me it's probably not going to be on an original Pong machine. No. <laughs> it's just going to be all, like, slick and 3D, probably, and all I'm that. I'm about but... to win a million and then the caps go or something. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? But yeah, apparently the, uh, you know, the CEO of Atari now says they've got a you know, big brand and a massive portfolio of games that are known to people around the world, so it's a natural fit to bring them to television. 
So yeah. maybe like Asteroids next and Missile Command. A and, million pound uh, Pac-Man, that would be the next yeah, one. I'd be quite good at that. Yeah. I'd be quite good at Pac-Man. So yeah, interesting that, you know, it does kind of feel like it's... <laughs> A weird format to shoehorn into a TV show, but I think I'd watch that just out of kind of morbid curiosity. I've seen worse. Yeah. Are you still playing your Wii U much recently? I haven't actually. It's it's been packed away at the moment because I'm having uh, my Amiga 600 on the television. So, well, there are still some games coming out on the Wii U. Really? Did you know about this? Really? Konami is, I think, probably the last remaining publisher, but they're still releasing. Turbo Graphic 16 games on the Wii U on the I, virtual I console. I thought that the last release was Zelda, wasn't it? Or is that the last Nintendo? That was release? the last Nintendo okay. release. Now, everyone was saying last year that you know probably the the Wii U is going to be handed over to like indie developers and stuff, but they've actually still in 2018 got a list of games that they're going to be releasing on the virtual console over the next few months. That's cool because I always noticed on their virtual console they've got some really old school stuff. And I was, I was surprised to see it there, to be honest. And the fact that TurboGrafx-16 games, I mean, this side of the pond, I don't know about you, but I never really saw TurboGrafx-16 when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, you hear a lot of it from the Americans, and all TurboGrafx CD as well. And, and the Japanese market yeah. is big as well. Uh, but they're actually going to be bringing two games out on uh, the Wii U virtual console. Um, one called Battle Chopper, which is a shoot-em-up game, and Necromancer, which is a horror role-playing game. But apparently it's uh, only in Japanese, that one. So, ah, okay. Devon done the translation. So if you've never played these games before, it's kind of a bit bizarre they're still releasing it on a dead platform. But I, I assume they probably had the conversions already done and it doesn't really cost them anything just to put them out on there, does it? Well, there might be still a market, you know, because there's a few people still with Wii U's, they might be eager to get whatever comes out. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if it's cheap and small, you could probably sell a decent volume. That's it, just because the console's been discontinued. You know, we know better than anyone doing a show like this. It doesn't mean the market completely vanishes and all the systems just go, does it? Look at the Dreamcasts. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So that's pretty cool, I think. So if you want to find out more about uh, downloading those, and hopefully they'll, you know, continue their release schedule, because we still haven't got the virtual console on the Switch yet. I need to dust my Wii U off now and then get it plugged in again. Well, some of these games look awesome. I mean, I've kind of seen the TurboGrafx, you know, shows and stuff in more recent years, but it's not really a system that I'm familiar with the library of, so... I've got a Wii U that's doing nothing. Might give a couple of these a download, I think. Yeah. Right then, guys. Well, thank you for checking out episode number 108 of the Retro L podcast. And don't forget, this weekend we're going to be at Play Expo in Blackpool, hosting the talk stage. So if you're going to be along on a Saturday or Sunday... I'll be uh, performing with my stylophone <laughs> on the beach. It's going to be cold in Blackpool on the <laughs> yeah, beach. Oh, we'll be God. staying away from the beach this weekend. We're going to be in the hotel having whiskey. Yeah, I was going to say... I said that to you before, didn't I? I said I might have a break from beer and stuff, like, you know, hot chocolate or something. Ravi said whiskey and thought, yeah, that warms your cockles, yeah. doesn't it? So I think you've got a good plan there. And then next weekend, Ravi's going to be at Geek Margate. So if you want to find out more about any of these events, we'll put all the information in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, well, thank you for checking out episode number 108. We'll see you again next Friday. And now, this week's very special guest, Michael Laurie. See you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Michael Laurie. Hi there. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, that's great. Um, After a bit of microphone trouble, I got here eventually. Yeah, I think uh, resting in a wine bottle, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite an ingenious solution. It's a, it's a Nova Scotian cider bottle, apparently, but yeah, we got there. <laughs> you're from the UK, but you live over in Nova Scotia now. Yeah, uh, moved ooh, seven or eight, no, maybe nearly ten years ago now. God, it's getting a long time. 
Well, let's go back to those kind of early days, um, you know, when you first started experiencing computers and gaming. So now you've got a very interesting history. I mean, we're probably going back a few years, but do, do you remember when you first saw a computer or used one? <laughs> well, I grew up in Blackpool and Douglas on the Isle of Man, so I was surrounded by the old arcade machines. Um, even in the late 70s, early 80s, some of those were pretty good stuff. I was absolutely awful at them. I couldn't play them. Um, still to this day, I've never cleared a space uh, screen in Space Invaders. Pac-Man, I last about 40 seconds and that's it. I die. Um, they they started to get quite advanced towards the end, but my first introduction to computers, well, I was stuck in a snowstorm, I think, somewhere in England, and a relative of mine had a ZX80. So I started playing with that. Then I kind of liked it. I wasn't hooked like most people were. I was an electronics person at the time. So I was kind of more interested in how they worked. Um, it wasn't Tron. It wasn't Gyrus. It wasn't an Intellivision. It didn't look particularly interesting. But I could do things with it. I could make it do things I wanted. So that was kind of interesting to me. Um, moved on like most people from the ZX80 to the ZX81. Made money fixing those for other people because they were kind of crap. Won a Spectrum, which I didn't win it. I wrote an article and got it. Uh, wrote my first adventure game on the ZX81, which was absolutely awful and didn't last very long. I actually sold that to a few people. What was that game? Um, I'm trying to remember. It was, I can't remember the name of it. It was House of Fun or something. It was absolutely awful. Um <laughs> I'm being fair here to it. It was probably worse than absolutely awful. Um, only I could solve the puzzles because they were really bad. I was not very good at game writing in these days. Um, and it was, I think semi-pornographic is quite a <laughs> polite way of saying it. But that sold games. So I sold a bunch of those on cassette tapes to a few of my people in school and made a bit of money out of that. So... Yeah, I suppose my first foray into gaming was selling pornographic games. Great. Doesn't sound so good now, does it? <laughs> well, I heard also um, that uh, due to being kind of naughty at school, you got um, locked in a room with computers. <laughs> yeah, I was a little toe rug at school and I had a, a rather public argument with my games um, instructor at school. So I was thrown out of games for the final three years of my schooling life. Um, the maths teacher decided, oh, well, we'll give him the 380Z, which was, as in those days, sitting on a trolley, and it was the school's computer, so he stuck me in a cupboard, basically, or a corridor, it was a corridor, I think, with this 380Z, and the only thing I could find on it that was of any interest was Colossal Cave, so obviously I played Colossal Cave for three years, which... <laughs> You get really good at Colossal Cave after three years. <laughs> and it beats writing lines on the blackboard, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose. I did discover some other things, but the only thing I'd actually remember about that was Colossal Cave. I think I did some programming. But I don't know, the 380Z wasn't the best machine in the world for that sort of thing. No, it was meant to be. Well, were you into um, fantasy books or adventures when you were a kid as well? <laughs> I wasn't really. Um, I'm a very bad example of an adventure writer, but... I I played some of the micro ones. I did like the micro ones. Um, there were some fascinating things. I like the technology more than the games, I think. Because, I mean, when Ant Attack came out, I don't know if you know Spectrum Ant Attack. Mm, yeah. Fascinating game. Brilliant graphics, but god-awful gameplay on it. But I didn't mind the gameplay being awful. I just liked playing them to see what they did. Valhalla was good as well, because it was a sort of multi-user game without other users. 
and it had non-player characters, same as The Hobbit kind of did on the Spectrum again. Well, but, when was the first time you kind of discovered a network or a kind of a, <laughs> a way to connect to other computers? I suppose that changes everything, doesn't it? Um, I acquired a teletype terminal, one of those typewriters with the paper tape um, machines at the side of it. And that was hooked up to a acoustic coupler running at, I think it was 110 Bode, and managed to work out how to dial into things with that. It was so noisy. You had to wear headphones, basically, not to get deafened. But had a fascinating aside that the punch tape writer and reader, you could set up all your passwords and login stuff, and you could just feed it back and sit back, and it would log you into everything. But I played with bulletin boards first off for a while on that. Um, they were kind of interesting. You learned a little bit. And then I learned about MUD, which was a running at Essex. And I actually think I'd already got my Spectrum modem by then. So I think I was not on the teletype for MUD. Uh, I dialed into Essex, learned how to do that, played MUD, got killed, played it again, got killed, hated it. I really hated Essex MUD. It was not really made for normal people to use. It was university students in a clique. So I played that, um, didn't like it, left, went back to bulletin boards. And about what two years later, I'd nicked my uh, school's Prestel Micronet account. I decided to play Shades, which was a game written by Neil Newell. I now know him, but I didn't then. He'd written that when Mud was offline one Christmas, and it was on Micronet on BT. And again, it was it was not a good game, but it was interesting to talk to people, and it didn't have the clique that Mud had. It was all fairly new people, people who'd come in from BT, so the consumer base rather than academics. Well, I was going to say, actually, that must have been quite magical, exploring these kind of early networks, and just the fact that you ha had someone else talking to you on your computer screen must have been a bit kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, well, um, BT's Micronet wasn't really set up for anything other than looking up data, so the fact that Shades was on there was actually quite a big jump for them. I actually, I, a few years later, I worked with the people who did it all. So the history of that's actually quite fascinating, but not to cover here. But yeah, I mean, Shades was a big jump for BT because people think of BT as this kind of boring monolith. But I mean, it's made up of a lot of people who did a lot of research and had quite a lot of their own interests. So they were able to push stuff they wanted. And Shades was, as I say, it wasn't the best game, but it was certainly the first online interactive mud I'd played that I liked. Then I became an academic. I went to Leeds University in 1986. Um, since I was on the same network, I decided to have another look at mud because it seemed like it might be interesting. So I went on to Essex. I decided to have a play. Mm, same thing happened. I got killed. Mm, nobody would talk to me. Again, the cliques. It was, it was really hard to get in, but I, I persevered this time because it was free and I had a lot of time and looked around on the deck system 10 that it was running on and discovered there were some other games on there as well. There was Rock, which was based on Fraggle Rock, which wasn't finished, but I think that was my favorite game at Essex for the first year. There was Mist, which we'll get on to later, but that was this medieval anarchy bloodfest world which just wasn't finished. It was a, it was an interesting game, but it wasn't finished. And then there was Uni, which was, again, a half-finished 
uh, game had just been left and it was it was a not good game it was just full of Essex in jokes but the interesting thing about it was it was so badly written it had exposed how the innards worked of the game so you could sort of explore how the game system worked and as a systems programmer for me that was rather interesting so I could play the game and I could find the bugs and I could work out why the bugs were doing what they were doing from the inside out I was learning an awful lot about how the game system was working so I was basically reverse engineering in my head how on earth this mud system was working I'm trying to think about a year later a guy called Simon Smith at Essex I don't know what he did I still don't know who he was or what he did he appeared and he had the source code to mist and he talked to me and I talked to him and we decided, well, let's fix the game. Let's try and make it into a playable game. So we took Mist. He was interested in writing the actual game stuff. So he added to the map. He created new little realms in the game. I was interested in fixing the bugs. So what I did was fixed all the bugs and then watched how people played it very carefully, especially new players. My main interest was new players. So I watched how the new players interacted with the game. If they did something and I thought, well, that should give them a message, that should do something, then I'd make it do something. I'd give them a message. And I made the game, I padded the game out. So there was actually a proper game there to play. Fixed all the bugs and then zeroed everybody, reset everybody to a novice, and except for a couple of people I needed to help run it. And then oh. we got a game that was playable. So I was wondering back then, you know, the phone bills used to be massively high and uh, all these people connecting to Mist. Um, uh, how did they kind of afford it? <laughs> it was all on the academic network. So in those days, uh, Essex was connected via Janet, which was the joint academic network. So all universities were connected to that at about 9.6K. Um, some of them had 19.2K lines. They were very posh. Um, and there was also X25, which was BT's packet switching system. People from, that was called IPSS in those days, I think. That was a BT commercial offering, and it connected to other packet switch systems around the world. So we had American players. We had, um, or oh, we didn't have an end game. We had this situation where wizards were sitting there arguing with each other and playing stupid games with the players. And I wanted something to happen that wasn't that sitting around so what i did was i made wizards mortal so they were no longer immortal if somebody came along with a chainsaw or a shotgun they could kill a wizard and if enough people ganged up or got wizards onto their side or did whatever they could go around killing wizards so wizards were no longer mortal they couldn't sit there lording around or anymore so i bought back the old bloodbath and turned the game much more into politics but the problem with that is it required basically me as a dungeon master all the time the game was running 365 days a year and yeah that wasn't fun for me in the end did you still get time to do your uh, your academic work <laughs> mm, we don't talk about that much i did pass in the end not very well uh i got suspended three times they wouldn't let me get my final degree unless i redid all my second year coursework i think i went to about five lectures in my second year surviving on an hour's sleep a night at that point yeah nah, academically not very good at that point well let's talk a bit about um internet relay chat irc which obviously came along in the late 80s and um when did you first find out about it and start using irc at the time i was running i was running everything on janice at the time but a lot of it was alan cox had 
now one of the famous Linux people, had gone into commercial from academia. So I inherited Abermud 2, which we were running on three or four different sites. So I spent two years, I think, uh, running Abermud 2, editing, recreating the game world, doing all that. And again, this is where Vijay comes in. He basically taught me into sending him a copy of Abermud which in reflection might have been a bad idea, but we, we shipped it to Virginia and he ran the first ever outside the UK Abermud. And we also came up with a distribution agreement. I think Alan was involved with that, that we could now ship Abermud to the US and people could have licenses to run it. On Vijay's site, he had just got the first ever IRC server outside Finland. So... He set that up. He said, come along, have a look at this. So he made me an IRC operator on his server, and I looked at it, and it was very different in those days from what it is now. It was much more like an online CB. The channels were numbers. Most people on it were Finnish. You could talk into speaking English sometimes, but not too often. It wasn't very interesting. I quit it for the next two years and went back to MUDs and some of the other talkers and things online. So it wasn't this kind of massive revolution where real-time chat suddenly came and... No, because when you look at... When you compare IRC with its British competition, which was bigger at that point, it was a thing called Cheese Plants House, which was running at Warwick University, which had a stupid name, but it was pretty good because it was not only a... It was halfway between IRC and a mud. It had no, no worlds, no quests, nothing like that. But it had an interesting chat system. It had a mo well, not emojis. It had text emojis. You could actually action things. So you could say, Laurie sits here crying about the world. You could shout to more than one room. You could go into private rooms and chat with people. It was, as I say, halfway between a mud and a talker. And IRC was nothing like that. IRC was so far behind Cheese Plant's house in terms of being interesting to use. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> IRC wasn't much fun to the Brits, who had much better things to play with at the time. Well, I remember, you know, obviously as we went on, I mean, you know, I, I kind of really got into online probably, you know, a bit later in the mid-90s, really, but I remember spending, you know, going on IRC and staying up to like five, six in the morning, just <laughs> chatting to people all around the world. And, I mean, did you, do you kind of have any memories or, you know, people that you met back then that were kind of good memories of IRC or Cheese Plant's House or any characters you met on there? Uh, IRC... I re-got back into in about 91 when we'd closed Essex down. So I wanted something to do. So I started looking at IRC again. Uh, this was just before Demon came along. So I think we're talking 91, 92 here. We'd set up a few academic servers. Warwick University had quite a good server. Um, I had a good server running in Edinburgh. And there was one at ICL in London. So we had... A loose knit. Oh, we had one at Loughborough as well. Yeah, we had four servers in the UK. Um, then Demon came along, which changed the world. Um, it suddenly turned the internet that we had at the time into a non academic internet for the first time. So people who were coming along to IRC, to the Abermuds that were running, they they weren't academics and we didn't know how to deal with this. It kind of was shocking to us because we ran the world in a very, I'd say old boys network, but that makes it sound too posh. Um, it was very informal. If we wanted something doing at another ISP, 
we'd phone them up and we'd say, look, mate, do this for me, will you? And they'd do it. But Demon didn't do that. Demon didn't cooperate. We didn't even know who they were. We hadn't. We didn't know somebody who'd been to university with them. I'm very good friends with a lot of the old Demon people now. But, yeah, it was kind of a nightmare that they didn't cooperate. And they broke things like the name registration system. So names name lookups didn't work on the academic networks for about a year and a half. I hacked the machine in the end and fixed it, which was well, the only way of getting it done. But that wasn't considered particularly naughty in those days. And you you were kind of running a few muds as well till this time as well. Yeah, till 91 I ran everything. I know it sounds silly now, but I ran everything on the British academic network. What I'd basically done is I... I don't know how I did this. I look back and I can't work out how on earth I did it. I'd conned all these universities into running these things on their sites in exchange for looking after them and keeping them safe under one big banner of, okay, we run Essex, we run Abermud, we run Loughborough, we run Lampeter, we run Stirling. They had some muds on there. Southampton had a big Abermud. And I ran them all. And what I could say was, well, if we get any trouble, we'll keep them off all of them. So it kind of worked. And as I say, I don't know how it worked. I look back and I have no idea how I conned these people into doing it. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, did, did they see the value in having this software running on their servers and systems? Yeah, I mean, I look at Lampeter. Lampeter's a good example. St. David's University College in Wales, tiny little college. It does um, archaeologists and theologians. I think that's it. Um, they wanted to get people to use computers because archaeologists and theologians weren't really people who use computers so they asked me they approached me and said can you put a mud on this machine which sounded a bit strange but yeah fine another university wants a mud we'll do it so we set up a vax mud which is long forgotten system and we put it on there and they loved it their students played it all the time and it was people who had never have used computers before and they were just playing this mud. They were learning to type. They were learning to access it. They were spending more time on the computer. And that was great. Well, you mentioned Demon coming along. And obviously around that era, kind of the early 90s, there was a massive change in regards to being online. Um, do you remember the first time you saw the World Wide Web? And what did you initially think of it? I was running a system called HICOM in Loughborough University, which was funded by all sorts of big people. BT, Digital Equipment, British Psychological Society, British Computer Society. So we had this machine sitting there um, that I ended up systems managing. Can't remember how. I was just good at it. Nobody else wanted to do it. So I basically volunteered to do it. And we had this, it was researching into human-computer interaction. So at the time, we were cutting edge of user interface stuff. And we had all this data on the internet, well, on the internet and Janet. And there was no real way of accessing it. So we had different systems. And what we'd opted for was something called VaxNotes, which was very similar to what Prestel was, but much, much faster. And we had other systems. We had Archie. We had, I can't remember the name of the other one. But these are all ways of looking at vast amounts of data, accessing data quickly. And we were experimenting with all of them. And I was talking to CERN, and we got a very early version of the World Wide Web server on there. We did some experiments with it. And bearing in mind, I was sitting... I was working for Leeds University at this point, and I had a VT220 on my desk, a 
80-column terminal. Access in the World Wide Web's not very interesting from an 80-column terminal. It doesn't look much different than anything else on the an 80 column terminal so i tested a few clients on a vax station so we had a graphical interface which looks kind of like a, an archaic browser and i could see the value in it it was so slow because when remember we were still connected at 19.2k graphics were rudimentary even on sun's next stations and vax stations and it would if you wanted to see a graphic you were looking at five ten minutes for it to load you didn't get the graphical internet that you had now you basically had text with hyperlinks and if you wanted to look at a picture you'd click on it and it might appear in a few minutes so my report on the world wide web was yeah nice idea i like hypertext but none of the graphic stuff's going to take off because there wasn't enough power at the desktop and the internet was too slow well um, um when was the kind of point when it started <laughs> churning from an academic thing into a kind of crazy teenaged anarchist cookbook <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> mad arena Again, I'm I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to credit Demon with this. It really was Demon that changed the British world as far as this went. And we were ahead of everybody else. When you look at the US and everybody else, we were far ahead of those as far as networking stuff went. And Demon came along. All there was really to do on Demon, though, when you look at it, was um, IRC. We They connected to IRC servers and they created their own in the end. And Usenet and... They turned Usenet into a weird thing. Because again, Usenet was mostly academics, talking about academic things. And then these people from Demon came along. And I'm not going to say ruined it, because that's not true. They didn't ruin it. But they changed it. They changed it from something it wasn't before. Um, they had arguments. They discussed things that weren't particularly academic. It was, it was an interesting change to watch. And... Not necessarily a good change for a lot of the people on the internet at the time. Um, I'd opened up about two years earlier for uh, from Demon. I'd opened up the internet to a lot of more people. Highcom was giving free accounts away, so people could get on the internet. But again, they couldn't do anything. I mean, you didn't have web browsers. Thinking web browsers came along what ninety two, ninety three, but Mo modems mosaic. weren't. Yeah, modems weren't keeping up with that at that point. So, I think it still took till about ninety four, ninety five for the web to become much as it sort of is now. So people were still using IRC and Usenet then more than the web. I think. Well, obviously, security was a lot more rudimentary back then. I remember reading stuff about, like, you know, Robert Schifrin's hack on Prestel back in the eighties, and obviously the uh, the famous Kevin Mitnick. Um, had an account on one of the first public access ISPs. I mean, were you actually on the same um, ISP that he was? Did you actually have any interaction with Kevin? <laughs> um, I've known Kevin for a long time. He, I used to work with a guy called Neil Clift, who Kevin was obsessed with. And rightly so, Neil was a brilliant VMS hacker, probably one of the best hackers ever, had high-profile jobs for Microsoft and Google. They poached him for vast amounts of money in the end. But he hides away in the background. But Kevin was obsessed with getting his hacks for VMS systems. And so I dealt with him before his first arrest. This was in the 80s. And then he reappeared. I, I think he was on the run at this point. I think he'd skipped all his bails and everything, and he was on the run because the US Marshal Service was after him. So he must have been convicted. And he was using HiCom, which was, again, my machine, because it was a public access VMS machine. Now, I had chatted to him, and I gave him a legal account at one point on the condition that 
he didn't do anything bad. That lasted a day. Um, <laughs> so he was not too happy with me for removing him from that. I tried. I wanted him to go legal, but no. Um, I was working with Deck at the time anyway. Um, I made it fairly clear to him that I was after him. I was going to try and catch him. But we had this kind of standoff. Not friends, but not massive enemies situation. Um, one of the systems managers at Loughborough then discovered, he was looking at disk space and noticed that disk space was vanishing. And he discovered that Kevin was logging everything I did, so every screen, every key press on one of the Unix machines, which I used to get to HiCop because it had screen on it so I could run multiple sessions. So we had this interesting situation where Kevin was monitoring me if we let him know that we'd caught him, he'd stop using it. So we had him in a place where we knew he was, and he didn't know that we'd spotted his monitoring. So we started monitoring him at the network level before the machine. So we were looking at his literal every IP packet. I had to go on for a year being monitored by both the FBI and Kevin. So everything I was doing was being monitored, recorded into federal evidence. And then Kevin was using anything he could find that I was logging on. So I couldn't tell him or let him know that I'd done it. So I still had to log on to machines with my passwords. I still had to talk to people privately. I still had to do all my work with him watching everything I did. I would occasionally, if I wanted to do something like work secret, I'd log on to a different machine. But basically, I lived my life being monitored by the FBI and Kevin for a year and a bit. That was so weird. Well, how did you feel when Kevin eventually got caught? Quite pleased. Uh, the story of how he got caught has been turned into some weird urban folklore. Always makes it seem like one person caught him when there was a huge team following Kevin, monitoring everything he was doing. I don't hold any grudges on I'm glad he was caught. Um, I do talk to him now. Again, we're not friends, but we're not enemies. We, we chat occasionally. You must have had a healthy respect for like him, his technical ability then. I don't want to be mean about him. Um, <laughs> he's, he was not a brilliant hacker, but he was a fantastic social engineer. Hmm. Um, you've got to give him credit for that. His skills in social engineering were second to none. And he, we watched him get extra-extra numbers out of BT in seconds. He could just <laughs> call people up and turn them to his will in the, just by phoning them up and pretending to be other BT engineers. He knew the lingo. He knew how to talk to them. He was just brilliant at getting information out of people. And, yeah, can't fault him for that. I think he's probably... Neil Clift might be the best hacker in the world, but Kevin Mitnick is probably the best social engineer. Well, let's talk about, obviously, the fact that you were early with access to the internet meant that you had access to some um, domains that maybe other companies would have been interested in <laughs> as the years went on. How did your interest yes. in registering domains begin then, and what, where did that start? Demon came along and changed my world. I wasn't really running everything anymore, so I needed a new intellectual challenge. So I thought, well, let's set up an internet company. This was 1994, I think. So, great, we had the World Wide Web. Um, I had a lot of internet resources that I could use. So I thought, well, let's try and sell people internet. I set up a company called UKNet, and we tried to sell things to people. So I called Renault, tried to sell them internet. And they said, well, we've heard of the internet, but we're never going to be on it. It's 
that thing that weird people use. So that didn't work. So I came up with a new scheme. Well, what we'll do is we'll set up mock sites. So we'll get a domain for richer sounds, say. We'll set up richersounds.com. We'll put a fake site on there. And we'll say, instead of, do you want to be on the internet? We'll say, look, we set up this as a mock site. Have a look at it. This is what you could be on the internet. And they said no. And everybody said no. Still nobody wanted the internet in 1994. It just wasn't of interest to commercial companies at all. And in the course of this, I'd registered a bunch of domain names. And the most famous one for me probably being harrods.com. And about three years later, probably looking at 96, 97, um, I was in holiday in Scotland uh, cell phone coverage was really bad in Scotland in 1996-97. So I came back to Edinburgh. And the, I was on the front of one of the newspapers. Uh, <laughs> the information superhighway being sued by Harrods for passing off, pretending to be Harrods on the internet. Yeah. So yes, Harrods had apparently decided to sue me for an awful lot of money for passing off as Harrods on the internet. Uh, that was interesting because I owned Harrods.com because domain names didn't expire in those days. So once you'd registered a domain name, it was yours forever. Um, I was the registry name attached to Harrods.com. So I was the person they sued. Um, that didn't go well. Don't fight court cases with angry billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had Burger King as well, didn't you? BurgerKing.com? I honestly can't remember. The, big, the other big one that I got into... A court case with was bar.com but baa sued me for bar.com now we had a sheep site on it and it was um making fun of people's woolly jumpers on the internet which was a great site i loved that site but baa decided to sue us for that because they decided they owned a worldwide trademark for bar and i should have won that case but all sorts of weird things happened politically and financially with that and I had to back out in the end it made it untenable for me to win I'm trying to work out what others I had we got I got a lot stolen it was an anarchy as far as name registration went then and I don't know if you know anything about the sex.com case he had it stolen from him in the early 90s and actually decided to sue he got the domain back but the amount of money he must have spent a few million getting that domain back which was insane at the time. I guess you said the president. It had never been done before, had it? So I guess lawyers probably didn't know how to handle it. It's, it was something brand new. No, I mean, Harrods set, uh, case law, I was the first individual ever to be sued for having a domain name. So, I mean, that set a bad case law because I lost. Um, these days, if Harrods had been tried, there's no way they would have won, I don't think. I think trademark law has completely changed in that sense because I wasn't passing off as them. I'm not going to test it. I'm not going to fight any more angry billionaires. I did have a lot of quite good generic domain names in those days, but they all got stolen. And I'm looking now at things like Iceland.com. That got stolen because people could bribe people in the internet registries or send faxes pretending to be somebody else and just get them changed over. And there was no record of the changes. So you couldn't say, but I owned it a few days ago. I don't own it anymore. Where is it? And they just say, I don't know. Somebody else owns it now. Well, later on, you got into the world of uh, cybersecurity as well. And uh, you were working for BT for a while, weren't you? I mean, that was basically my first job when I left university because I had an awful lot of content, contents, contacts in the academic world. Then 
people would ask me to do things and I ended up basically as a private detective and probably the world's first hacker catcher. In fact, I think definitely the world's first hacker catcher. So I was basically chasing hackers for hire, um, which was an interesting job at the time. Most of the ones I caught never went to court. Um, I had clandestine meetings with people in dark suits who said, stop chasing this person. You don't want to know who they are. So the world was a bit strange as far as hackers went. But then I moved into more formal security. I worked for digital for a while. And that's how I got onto the Mitnick case because I knew him. He was on our system. So it was a natural fit that I got involved with that. I did some work for a few other companies. I did work for a lot of banks in security, doing security audits, security reviews and recommendations. And then in 1994, I went to work for British Telecom's new internet offering, which was BTNet. And that was their commercial offering about a year before BT Internet started. BT Internet sat on the back of BTNet. Um, I broke ways with BTNet. We, we became a big organisation, a big political organisation. I didn't like the people who were running it. You, in your kind of potted history, you mentioned uh, that you kind of shocked the BT guys at one point. Um, I, I got fired from BT at the end. It was weird. Nobody knows why. Still to this day, I've never heard why I was fired. But basically, I, I quit my job as commercial security and I wanted to leave. And they begged me to stay on for three months to manage a high-profile client so they gave me a big pay rise. They gave me the office that I really liked in London. And they say, right, great. Come here, manage this for them for three months. And then three hours after getting there, everybody left. <laughs> and it was weird. And I got a phone call saying, hang around, will you? And then my manager at the time, my new manager, came along and said, well, we've, we've been told we have to fire you. <laughs> so I was escorted out the building in that very bt way and i was fired and it was fascinating i didn't know why so i had spent the last few years working with what used to be the bt police i can't remember what they're called now but bt used to have its own police force same as um, british transport system and there was a hangover of that within bt so that was the bt police division so i went to dinner with them up in milton Keynes next week because they were fascinated by why on earth I'd been fired. They wanted to know what I'd done because, I mean, I was their chief commercial security person. <laughs> you don't just fire your chief commercial security person. So they were interested in what had happened. And they said, well, let's do an experiment. Let's see what you can still get into. Let's see what your pass card access is. So, yeah, for a few days I was going to big commercial buildings in London and some of the high secure data centers using my pass card to see if I could get in. Lo and behold, it worked. They did the equivalent of taking a selfie sitting next to the bank's clearing system. My leased line into my house from BT's internal network carried on working for two years after I was fired. That was quite good. I didn't mention it to anyone because I wanted to keep it. That was a 64K leased line. That was the ultimate in high power at the time. So you've actually, in more recent years, got into collecting systems as well, which um, is something Ravi and I can relate to, having quite, you know, big collections of classic <laughs> systems. Not as many as you, though. I think you've got over 200 <laughs> classic systems then, have you? I used to have a lot more. Um, the first collection got stolen, but 
it started when I was involved with Edinburgh's TARDIS public access system. That was an aging GC machine, and this was 88. And that machine was falling to pieces. It was it was the first ever public um, do-anything-you-want Unix machine on the network. It was our British equivalent of the MIT Media Lab. So that ran at Edinburgh University as an official project. And we actually got a couple of academic papers out of that. But anyway, I the only places I could get spares for that were Daresbury Labs. And I knew a few people at Daresbury Labs. So I don't know if you know Daresbury Labs. It's the one with a big, huge Van de Graaff generator outside it up in Manchester. Fascinating place. But I'd go up there to get old disks, bits of CPU, maybe the odd sun, to take up to Edinburgh to add to the TARDIS project um, collective up there. And I'd see all these things. Like, there'd be pallet loads of Commodore pets that they were just going to scrap. And that hurt. I didn't, I'm a hoarder. I'm a compulsive technology hoarder at heart. More a data hoarder than a physical hoarder. But yeah, and I did not like seeing this stuff being scrapped. And then Leeds scrapped the Deck System 10 in the ICL 1900. And it hurt to watch these machines that were probably couldn't be replaced being scrapped. So about 91, I started trying to collect what I could. I couldn't collect everything. A white vinyl only fit so much and I didn't have that much space. But I'd collect what I considered important. A lot of that was the big mini computers. Um, and then started seeing more and more old Commodore Pets, you'd see millions of, so I'd only needed one of those. Things like an Apple Lisa, I mean, they were just thrown away. I don't know how much they're worth now, but yeah, when, I saw those lying, thousands, yeah. <laughs> thousands, <yeah. laughs> when I saw those lying around, I picked them up and just, I mean, I'd run into the old micros as well, which I still had a soft spot for. So, I mean, I'm, you probably hate me for this. I've got pallet loads of mm, the Commodore Amigas and STs and things like that just sitting there because I don't really know what to do with them. Now, when I left the UK, the world had changed and people were collecting retro computers now. It had become a thing. So I wasn't basically a one-man army trying, look, keep this stuff. We'll never see it again. So I didn't need to collect it anymore. So I gave a lot of my collection away. Uh, Blatchley Park got quite a bit of it. Um, private collectors I'd give it away to but I kept the interesting stuff so I kept a few of everything and bought it with me in two 40 foot containers to Canada so there was still quite a lot of it I suppose well I think it's fantastic that you've kind of donated some of your machines to Bletchley Park as well because that's really a great historical place for computing in the UK and putting them on display as well letting other people see these machines which you know you, you were actually wise enough to realise that these are going to become part of history I suppose early on yeah well the the other thing I collected a lot of and still have a lot of I didn't give a lot of this away was documentation and media I wrote a long rant years ago we tried to bring uh, mud Essex mud back for Bletchley Park and they thought they had a deck 10 system so I went in there and thought, oh, great, let's put this on the Deck 10 system. And we'd have a running mud as a museum piece. And that didn't, they didn't have a Deck 10 system. They had a PDP 10, no, a PDP 11, sorry, which looked like a Deck 10. So I wasn't, I thought, well, why not run it on a VAX? So I got myself a VAX and I set up a Deck System 10 emulator on it and put mud on it. And I put the 
source code to the BCPL source code to the MUD driver on it, and I put the MUD database on it, and I went to compile it, and there was no compiler. So, great, it's a compiler. I'll just go get one. Where from? I couldn't get one. I still, what, 15 years later, I've never found a BCPL compiler for a DEX system 10. And when I was backing this up, like five years earlier, I didn't consider that I'd need to back the system software up. I figured I could always get hold of a DEX systems 10 BCPL compiler. There isn't one. As far as I know, it's dropped off the planet. It just doesn't exist anymore. Richard Bartle sent me a tape, which might have it on, but I don't have a, I think it's an eight track or a seven track tape drive that will read an old Dex System 10 tape and apparently neither did anybody else. So, Just people didn't think to keep it? No. Yeah. And <laughs> So I've got this media and then I later started, well, I've got the media, I need to start collecting the stuff that will read the media. So I have so many obscure tape drives and data drives and I have literally probably tons of documentation so i've got old pdp documentation old icl documentation i don't want it but i haven't found anyone to give it to yet i think as time goes on you know there are going to be more and more people that are interested because of how much computers have changed the world i mean i think we're probably only scratching the surface of of looking back on the history of computing today aren't we yeah i think i read that in like the last a few years we'd lost more data than over the entire course of human history before it's insane but i can yeah, believe it absolutely lost so much michael it's great that you're doing work to preserve um you know this history of computing and also i mean have you got any like, plans any things you're working on at the moment or any like future adventure game plans or things you're working on right now <laughs> nope i'm very boring these days i work in moderation um which I guess is the same job as I've been doing since the early 80s. So not much has changed for me, really. It just ups and downs into different little adventures on the side. But nope, nothing exciting <laughs> going on now. Do, just, you still, do you still play any of them? I can't resist every now and again. Victor Toth has a copy of the old British Legends running, uh, which was MUD before they incorporated some of the later stuff into MUD 1. So it's a sort of archaic version of Essex MUD. And it was the same as the one that ran on CompuServe. And I can't resist popping there every now and again. Uh, it's interesting to look at. It's a museum piece. I'm usually the only person on there. But I like it. It's It feels weird to be on there again. Um, I still use IRC occasionally. I still, I think I'm the longest serving IRC operator ever now. I've been on, I've been an operator since 1989-ish. I still go on there, I still look at the world, but it's changed. But if people want to challenge Michael Laurie to uh, <laughs> a, a mud adventure game, that's where they find you then today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, British Legends is well worth a look, actually. I mean, if you want to look what mud was like, uh, just look up British Legends on the internet and you'd have to telnet to it. I don't think there's a web interface, but find yourself a telnet client and you can go try it fantastic well michael it's been amazing talking to you and what an interesting story um thank you so much for sharing that with us this week no thank you i'll talk to you later